Peter Hill Explains, where I invite you to join the science teaching conversation with me about... Uh, Charlemagne. Uh, It's from the Home Library by Reverend E.L. Cutts, a 1940s book. So probably soon either out of copyright or soon to be out of copyright. And I'll just read it to you. Now, this is a pretty amazing thing that if you read old books, some of them can be rubbish... Some of them can be structured in a way which is sort of a window into the minds of people, or some of them can be so incredibly well-researched and knowledgeable that you know this person has studied and they've studied the art of writing and has really worked on a manuscript, produced a beautiful, beautiful book. And this is one, and this is going to be episode one. I'm, I'm going to read, right through the preface, I'm going to read the detail. So what happens here is that there's a little praises of each chapter. When you go in the table of contents, so you can work, work through like a study notes for it. So let's read this book. So it's Charlemagne, the Charlemagne, um, the Carlovingian Empire of Charles, the sort of the sort of like the transition from the Roman Empire and barbarian mishmash, and the Middle Ages erupted out of it. The sort of the um, the sort of Romans plus um, the barbarians equals the Catholic Church or the Church-ridden Middle Ages. Let's read it here. Preface. The popular view of history processes uh, possesses two characteristics. First, it deals with a broad generalization and marks history into great periods. Periods. Um, great periods. Secondly, it is attracted by great individualities and seizes on certain men as representatives of the periods in which they lived. So that's true. The Charlemagne is a man of a period. So they sort of name it Adolf Hitler, World War Two, World War One. Arch, you know, you turned the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, Napoleon, that type of stuff. Thus, Charlemagne stands in popular view as representative man of that obscure but very important period in which these uh, three elements, the ancient civilization of the Empire of the West, the fresh vigor of the barbarians who overran it, and the church were being fused into the natural life of medieval Europe. And that's a beautiful way, what a beautiful book in terms of that is saying that the precept is that you put these a name and a period and that goes that is a, a cover point to actually these three broad things happening here beautifully structured right up the front when we come to study the period uh, we find that the process of fusion was very complex and extended over over a long period and that while we may conveniently accept Charlemagne as the natural um, and representative figure of this period of history we must begin far back to trace the gradual changes which led up to him and if we are rightly to appreciate him and his work we must continue to study the history of the period long after he passed away from it and so in this book it will be found that the actual life of the emperor Karl occupies only a portion of it while it has been thought that uh, the popular name Charlemagne may be appropriately stand as a title for which is sketch of his period so we're Actually, sketching the period now. There's various chapters. I'm going to start off 
this chronological table, the Franks, settlement of the barbarians, and and so forth. The chronological table. It's a Q Mission Hall. So this is a um, uh, a book, and uh, you've got Charlemagne. It has sort of basically the Saracens um, and the uh, Islamic invaders have come in so far, and uh, you've got most of Europe, most of Western Europe there extending up, up, up there. So it's hard to see what's going on. Read our first chapter of Charlemagne, the Franks. So, Frankenreich, it's French. So, it's hard to think of French as Germans, that they were a Germanic tribe. Here's the fraction. This is the what goes in. The, so, this is Franks. And I wonder if this is repeated. This is the little prologue summary of what this chapter is about. I like that. That's an idea. Yep. Yeah, so, so this, the, this is the prologue of what you should expect to find in this chapter. And it's sort of a beautiful thing. Because it takes away the need to structure it. And so this is what's going to be in this chapter. Description of the Franks. Their inroads into the empire. The first settlements in Batavia. Whatever that means. In Holland, I suppose. In AD 355, spread as far as the Somme, uh, AD 445, Franks in alliance with the Romans. So it's interesting that you, the conquest of Gaul, now the Franks, now the Franks are not, not the, the Gallic people, they are a Germanic tribe. Okay, now um, uh, Gordian, the Gordian knot. It was a troubled reign of Gordian that the Franks made their first inroads into uh, his emperor. The Roman Empire, a horde of Teutonic giants with light complexions, fair hair, and green eyes, clothed in the spoils of the bear, uh, the ursus, the uh, whatever that is, uh, the boar, and the wolf. They looked at a distance like a herd of wild beasts. Each man bore his right hand a long lance, his left hand um, left a bucker. Uh, in his girdle, uh, a two-edged axe, which was their peculiar weapon, and uh, which they either used in hand-to-hand -hand encounters or hurled it from a distance with unerring precision. Uh, the migrating to new homes, they carried their wives and their children and rude household goods in a raft. Wagons. So you can see sort of almost Games of Thrones, these these horde of things. Uh, great wheels of solid wood drawn by oxen. So this is all the way back. Not the actual spokes and things like that. The spokes and iron. It's just solid wood. The wagons uh, ranged in a circle, formed a protection of their camp when needful. So it's circle up the wagons. I love this, sort of reading it. You actually get in the, the beautiful detail. In battle... According to ancient German custom, they formed themselves into a wedge. At the point of it, they placed their chosen warriors. At each, and uh, so each chief was surrounded by men of his own family. A formidable flank uh, advanced with impetuosity, yet with measured movement, which carefully preserved its formation, presenting to the foe a vision of a forest of lances, a crowd of half-naked bodies, half-clad in the skins of wild beasts. A cloud of cavalry similarly clad and armed covered the wings of the uh, phalanx. In charging, they uttered a terrible war cry. 
made more shrill and dissonant by the application of the edge of this uh, bucker to the mouth, whatever that means, buckler to the mouth. Uh, the marching, they sang a war song in which they exulted over slaughtered foes, even for food to the wild beasts and weeping women, and welcomed death in battle as a natural end of life, which the brave men uh, meet with a smile. This is, this is actually a quote from the martyrs. Okay, thus they emerged from the German forests, crossed the Rhine upon large rafts of timber, and burst upon the terrified inhabitants of the peaceful and prosperous province of Gaul, devastating a peaceful country, burning villas, driving off flocks and herds and country, fleeing from them. Sometimes they would pass in the sight of towns, where the gates were closed and the walls manned by citizen militia, and leave them unattacked. Sometimes... In more formidable numbers, they would storm the towns and carry off the citizens as slaves and their wealth as booty. Again and again, you wouldn't last too long. You'd be just, you'd just work as like a disposal, you know, built in obsolescence. You, know, you work until you dropped. Again and again, during the two centuries, attracted by the rich prey which the town and villas of the wealthy provincials offered. They repeated their raids, and again and again the imperial legions defeated them with great slaughter, and chased the survivors out of the empire. Aurelian defeated them at Mayen in AD 242, and drove them into the swamps of Holland. Twelve years after another inroad was punched by the generals of Gallienus in AD 276, they gained possession of sixty Gallic town cities and from which Probus drove them, and it is said that he killed 400,000 of them and their allies. Constantus Chlorus, in AD 292, drove the Salant Franks out of Batavian islands of the Lower Rhine. His great, uh, the great son of Constantine defeated them in the early years of his reigns with great slaughter, carried off two of their kings and thousands of their warriors in triumph to his capital of Threes. And there, in the games in honour of this victory, the famous Ludi Fanizzi gave them to the lions uh, in the amphitheatre. In the year AD 355, this is, uh, is a prominent date in the... History. I think that's right. History? Yep. In that year, uh, there was a great and general movement of the Franks along the whole of the frontier from Strasbourg to the sea, and apparently they endeavoured to establish themselves all along the left bank of the river. The Silesians then uh, again seized Batavium and spread to Toxandra, uh, where they firmly established themselves. This was their first permanent settlement to the left of the bank of the Rhine, the foundations of the kingdom of Clovis. The Emperor Julian attacked them in AD 358, but allowed them to retain their lands on condition they acknowledged themselves as subjects to the empire. So this is an interesting thing. Uh, for the most part, they continued faithful allies and formed a useful barrier against the barbarians beyond them. At this period, bodies of Frank auxiliaries were taken into the imperial service, in which some of their chiefs rose to high rank and great influence. The Franks gradually spread further and further until, at the beginning of the 5th century, we find them occupying the left bank of the Rhine, as far south as the Toronam, which became the chief town of the Silesian Franks. The Riparians, meanwhile, had been also extending themselves downwards from uh, Aldenach, along the middle of the Rhine, 
and they gain Cologne about the same time as uh, their Sicilian brothers reach Tournai. About the year AD 430, when the barbarians were breaking into the empire on every side, we come to the third stage of the westward progress of the Silesian Franks. The legendary historic um, uh, legendary histories assign the leadership and conquest to a period to a fabulous king, Pharamond, but there is no evidence of the existence of such a person. The conquest of Cambrai uh, by uh, Cloyan in AD 445, as well as the established historical fact. And the conquest of the country as far as the River Somme, uh, for though the Franks suffered a surprise and a defeat at the hands of Atius and Magirin, yet at the end of the war they retained possessions of the conquest. It's probable that this part of the country was comparatively desolate, and its colonisation by the Franks did not dispossess any considerable native population. Uh, Coleonion died in AD 448. Attila appeared in Gaul in AD 450. I suppose it's Attila the Hun. Uh, so the kingship of Salian, Franks, was disputed by two rival princes. The legends called one um, Moravianus. He appealed to Attius, the Roman prefect, um, for uh, countenance. His rival appealed to Attila. So Attila the Hun, King of Cross. In the great battle of Chalions, Maravis and his warriors were among the barbarian allies with Atirus and Visigoth Theoric uh, brought into the field. Uh, the rival faction of the Saxon Franks among the allies to the, of the Huns. The fate of the great battle uh, in giving victory to the Roman gave Maravis the kingship of the Silesian Franks. So they, the Franks sided with the Huns. I think the Huns, Huns are these redhead people who we now attribute they were the Scythians, Scythians. So there's an area, these, this, this really fierce tribe went in as far as Scotland. So Scotland is from the Huns. It's pretty amazing. His son Childric, who succeeded him, uh, was a licentious youth who, giving way to an unbridled passion and dishonouring the daughters of his chiefs, was driven to exile. It was a remarkable illustration of the relations between the Romans and the Franks, that when the Franks thus drove away their uh, hereditary chief, they chose Aegidus, a prefect of Gaul, as a king. At the end of eight years, Childric's friends had prepared the way for his return from exile, and he was restored to sovereignty. He had spent his years of exile court of King Thuringia. I do know that one. I'll respell that name for you. T-H-U-R-I-N-G-I-A. The grateful Frank seems to have repaid the hospitality of the royal host by gaining the affections of his queen, Basim. For, on his return uh, from exile, Basim fled and followed him. He married her, and Clovis was their son. The remaining 15 years of the reign of Childeric, uh, he was in alliance with Agus in defence of the northern and central Gaul against the growing power of the Visigoth of Spain and Aquitaine. So it's sort of barbarians everywhere. So I'm just going to stop that here. And that's my first Charlemagne number one. Thanks a lot for listening. It's going to be a great book. We're apt to have done the preface and chapter one. And what a beautifully written book this is. 
podcast, another story comes to a close. It's been a pleasure sharing this moment in time with you. May you discover truly amazing things, understand them and tell others. Thanks for listening.